Awesome. Good morning, Joy Church. So good to be with you guys today. Good to see you guys. Everybody had enough coffee and donuts this morning? Man, I'll tell you what, I didn't have any donuts, but I was really excited in the presence of God today. I love, as a church, we're just worshiping, engaging with the presence of the Lord. We're a worshiping church. Amen? One of the the directing uh, vision kind of pieces, one of the core pieces of who we are is a church that is directed and sustained by the presence of God. And so we never want to program anything into existence. You know, God's blessed us with a great building and an awesome facility to, to worship in. But, you know, it's always and always will be about, always been and always will be about just connecting with the Lord, whether that's in a park, on some grass somewhere, or in a nice place. And so we just love being in worship. Amen? I was telling somebody recently, I said, you know, my heart and vision for Joy Church is that we would, uh, we would worship like charismatics, we would pray like Pentecostals, we would read the Bible like Baptists, and we'd practice theology like Reformed. You know, we would just have it all, and uh, we'd just be that church, a New Testament church, and that's who we are. Man, so good to be with you today. Uh, I want to just say uh, special greetings to my sister Natalie and my brother-in-law Riley. They're here. Just wave your hands. And uh, Natalie's actually going to come up and sing a special today. She has a, a tape cassette that we're going to play, and she's going to sing along. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, Natalie and Riley are the uh, pastors up and coming in March of 2023 at Joy Medford. So give them a hand. And uh, it's going to take a few years to undo 40 years of my dad being the pastor. But, you know, they'll, they'll make sure and uh, do a good job. No, I'm kidding. But we love them. So good to have them with us today. And uh, before we jump into the message, I just, I just want to say, how about them ducks? How about them ducks? Let's go. And uh, I know that antacid uh, sales went up. Uh, antacid sales went up heavily yesterday in Eugene. All the pharmacies were like sending out tums and because all the Duck fans were like really feeling the stress and anxiety. Anybody else? Anybody else of that game? But, you know, we, we took it, we won, and we're moving on. So exciting. We're going to jump in. Today we're in a series called God Has a Name. And we're talking about the name of God, which is important and meaningful, because God's name reveals who he is. A lot of times when somebody says, who is God or what's God like, we'll kind of list off attributes or statistics Kind of like God has a baseball card, you know, well, God hit 330 in the minor leagues, and then he, you know, we say he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he's omniscient, he knows everything, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, and those are all true things about God, but they don't necessarily give us a window into seeing who he really is, his character, whereas his name reveals his character, who he is, and, and it's so important. Just to recap, kind of bringing you up to speed on the last few weeks of where we've been in this series, I'm just going to go through a couple of things, and then we'll jump into the, the portion of scripture that we're going to cover today. But the first thing is this, that God is a person. God is, he has a personality and he desires a personal relationship with you and I. I love the words of Francis Schaeffer. He says, God is not just transcendent. In other words, above it all, kind of somewhere sitting on a throne in the heavenlies. He's somewhere, you know, north of Jupiter, kind of sitting up there just like hope they figure it out someday. But he's also eminent. He is with us. We know the story of Jesus is that he is Emmanuel, God with us. So God is a person. He's not just a uh, not just an idea. He's not just a, a religious ideal. He's not just a philosophy. He's a person. And he has a name, number two. His name is Yahweh. And we don't know if we're saying that right because the ancient Hebrews stopped pronouncing it and they don't use vowels the same way we do. And so we think we're close. It could be Yehovah, uh, Yehovah, Yahweh, but we'll just call it Yahweh. We're pretty close, we think, there. And this is what it means. It means I am who I am and I will be who I will be. In other words, God, whoever he is, whatever his character is, which we know from the weeks past is good character, thank God, right, that he has good character, 
He's not going to change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so this God, Yahweh, that is compassionate and gracious, we talked about last week, that is slow to anger, as we're going to talk about today, that is merciful, that forgives, but doesn't let go of sin and actually brings justice, and we'll talk about that in a few weeks. The same God that reveals himself to a mountain thousands of years ago, somewhere in the Sinai Peninsula, to Moses and says, I am Yahweh, Yahweh the Lord, gracious and compassionate, is the same God we see in the person of Jesus Christ and is the same God we worship and serve today, and his character does not change. No matter what we do, we don't impress or move God by our actions or, or if we had a good week as a Christian or a bad week as a Christian. God is awesome every day, even on Mondays, right? When I wake up and I'm tired, he's still Yahweh, he's still good, he's still awesome. Number three, Jesus is Yahweh. One of the, I think, the big uh, mistakes that we make in, in, as Christians, and oftentimes people even looking into the Christian faith from the outside, is seeing Jesus as kind of like the upgraded God. He's God 2.0. Kind of like, I remember my sister, she got an iPhone, the original iPhone, you know? And, uh, and then the iPhone Plus came out and 2.0 and 3, and now we're on like iPhone 37 or something like that. I don't know what we're on now. But oftentimes we can see Jesus as this upgraded God, like God in the Old Testament is kind of mean and he's sort of grumpy and he looks more like Zeus sitting on a throne with a lightning bolt. And here comes Jesus and he's like the son that goes to college and gets some more liberal ideas and comes back and tells his dad he's a racist. You know, like he, he comes back to correct the, uh, hello, wake up, okay. Uh, he, he comes, he's like correcting the God of the Old Testament and that could not be further from the truth. Jesus isn't woke God. Come on, somebody. I told you second service, it's more in the flesh, right? I gave the Holy Spirit sermon in the first service. This is Jake in the flesh. Second, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Just having fun. Jesus is Yahweh. This same God that reveals himself on a mountain to Moses is the God that comes in the flesh. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the same compassion and graciousness and slow to anger and yet a person who upholds justice and hates injustice, this God we see in Exodus 34 that we're going to read about today is seen in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He's one and the same. So in this series, we're looking at a core passage, Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. And we're going to read that in just a second. But this is such an awesome passage of scripture. Do you know it's the most quoted verse or passage in the Bible by the Bible? In other words, as God is uh, inspiring the authors of the, the scriptures, all 66 books over a period of thousands of years, writing them down, all different types of literary forms, poetry, apocryphal literature, history, all of this coming together. It's one united thread describing God. And you'll see all throughout the scripture that it references back to Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. Why? Because this is where God says, this is who I am. See, it's one thing to hear a song about God. It's another thing to have a friend say, this is what God has done in my life. It's, it's quite another to have the God of heaven and earth say, this is who I am. And this is who I always will be. And that's why Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is so meaningful. Let's read it together. Exodus 34, verse 6 says, Yahweh, Yahweh, whenever you see the word the Lord in scripture, it's actually God's name, Yahweh. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God. We talked about that last week. Rachum vechanun. Rachum vechanun, compassion and gracious. Rachum is the root word. It comes from a mother's womb. And what that's saying is God cares about you like a parent cares for their child. And then this word and, chanun, is the action verb that says not only does God feel like a parent feels for their children, which is deep and compassionate, like a mother feels for her children. This is how God feels towards you and I. 
If you're here today and you're saying, I, I don't know if God loves me. I've done too much. I've gone too far. I'm here to tell you, God loves you deeply. He's a perfect father. He loves you so much. He has compassion upon you. He's incredible. He wants to bring you into relationship with him. I don't care where you've been, what you've done. He, he loves you. He's for you. And not only is he filled with that compassion, not only does he feel that towards you, but Hanun, he acts upon it. He, he moves into the world and, and is here to ransom and redeem. Every other world religion is a story about how we can climb to God. The Christian faith is a story of how God climbed down to us. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. And so compassionate and gracious God. Then this next part, slow to anger. Okay, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And you're like, what's this part about God punishing kids? That's two weeks from now, so come back, okay? Because we're building this whole thing. Like Netflix can do spoiler alerts. We do it too. We're going to end on a cliffhanger every week, and you've got to come back, right? If not for the message, come back for donuts, right? And for the ducks update. Okay, all right. So today we're going to talk about this part of the, of the passage where Yahweh reveals himself as slow to anger. Slow to anger. Now, in Hebrew, it's really interesting because it doesn't say slow to anger in Hebrew. Here's what it actually says. Arech apayim. Arech apayim. I'm doing my Hebrew this week trying to act like I know how to pronounce it. Arach. You know, I'm trying to get the chach. Arech apayim. You know what it means? It means long nostrils. How many of you are like, okay. Didn't know the Bible said that God has a big nose. He does. God has a big nose. And here's what the word picture means. Arech apayim, long nostril, means that when you get angry, you tend to go, <laughs> right? You get like all lathered up. You're ready to fight. You know, you start breathing quick. And what does your mom tell you when you get all mad at your brother or sister? She says what? Count to? 10, right? If your mom was a good, some of their moms that wanted the kids to fight said count to two. And then <laughs> they knew that the fuse would burn. Just, ah, you know, battle. Somebody was raised by an American gladiator. You know, it might have been what your mom did. But your mom says count to 10, right? And then what else does she say? Take a deep breath, right? Like take a break. Because when you get angry, there's this, this urge to do something about what you're angry about, Right? And so this, this expression, long of nostril, long nostrils is saying God takes a deep breath and counts to 10 when he feels angry. And so this is talking about not being ruled by your anger. Now, as an Italian with what has been labeled the Roman nose, right? A lot of Italians get called the Roman nose. I have it. And uh, coming from my Sicilian background, I feel so justified that I, like God, have a long nose, right? So those of us that have a big, a big snout, you know, we can, be, uh, we can be happy. But we actually see this expression throughout the scripture. In Proverbs 14, 29, it says, whoever is arech apayim, whoever has a long nose, has great understanding. In English, we translate it as patient, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly. From the book, God Has a Name, uh, John Mark Comer says this, there's a similar Maxim in Proverbs 16, whoever is arech apayim is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. In this verse, the synonym for slow to anger is rules his spirit, or what we would call self-control. If you're slow to anger, it's not that you don't have feelings of frustration, it's that you don't lose it and explode when you get worked up emotionally. You have control over your feelings of frustration and anger and even rage. And he sums it up. So here's the basic idea. You can make God mad 
but you have to really work at it. How many of you are grateful that we have to really work to get God mad? I was reading on an Oregon Ducks message board about these guys were kind of confessing, probably looking for absolution on this message board, you know, and they were saying, yeah, I get really upset in the games. And one guy showed a picture where he'd smashed his TV. (laughs) It was not me. In fact, yesterday I was very calm. Andrew Brooks only had to talk me off the ledge once in the game via text. And then, and then I was consoling others, like in the third quarter, we can still win, you know, very zen and, and above it all, very rech apaim, you know, if you will. But these guys are saying, yeah, I slammed, I, I crushed my TV, I broke my TV, I yelled and screamed, my kids were crying. <laughs> and my wife left the house, you know. And if that's you, don't, don't confess today. You come to me privately, we'll pray for you. But uh, that... I think the, the idea that many people have of God is that this is what he does. He flies into a rage, that he's, he's just w- waiting to be provoked. It's like you've ticked him off for so long, and at any moment, it's just, he's just going to smack you down. And, and yet what he says about himself is the exact opposite. I am erech apayim. I have long nostrils. I count to ten. I wait. I'm, I'm slow to anger. Now let's apply this to the character of Yahweh. We're learning about him and his name. Number one, there's... Two sides to this. So the first side of the coin is that God is slow to anger, which is such a beautiful thing. Unlike the other gods, Yahweh doesn't have a temper. He's not volatile or edgy or spasmodic. He doesn't fly off the handle or slam the door and storm out of the house in the God version of a temper tantrum. When the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, the Hebrew scholars translated Erech Apaim with the Greek word meaning patient. Actually, the earliest English translations used the word long-suffering that's even better. It does a great job of capturing the idea. Yahweh is patient. He's long-suffering. This is the God that we serve. Now, I think everybody has a person in their family that tends to move a lot slower than the rest. You have that person in your family who eats slow, right? The person that has to go to the bathroom right before you're going to leave the restaurant. And you know, you're like, basically, I better get a football game on because it's going to be an hour and a half. You know, they're going to have to fix the plumbing when this person's done. You know, you have that person... <laughs> In every family, it's like the person who ties their shoes and it takes longer than if they went to the store and bought shoes, you know? And you're going, how is this even possible? We have a person in our family who will remain nameless who moves really slow. And when somebody moves so slow, and as the slowest person out of our marriage, Bethany and I, she moves quick, I move slow. Um, I I really, uh, I, I want the compassion for this today. But when people move too slow, it's irritating. When, when you get on the freeway and somebody's going 45 in a 60 and you're like, go, right? You have that thing right underneath your right foot. It's called a gas pedal. Use it. Push it down, you know. Come on, grandma. And then you drive by and it's like this huge man who can kill you and you're like, I better. <laughs> straight ahead. Looking straight ahead. But sometimes slow is good. Aren't you glad that God is so slow when it comes to getting angry because I don't know about you but I know for a fact I've done a lot of things in my life that if I were God would have really royally ticked me off and I've done them again and again and again and again I mean I smashed that tv after that ducks game again and again. but whatever your per- preferred poison of sin in your life that you kind of turn to We've all done things that that God has a right to be angry at, and I'm grateful that his anger is slow. Now, we're going to talk about the difference between human anger and God's anger in just a second, but let's continue to develop this idea. 
If you could throw up that picture, Daniel, have you guys ever been to Great Wolf Lodge? Uh, at Great Wolf Lodge, it's this water park up in Washington, and they have them all around the country. There's this massive thousand-gallon water bucket that gets filled up slowly, slowly, slowly. It takes about 5, 10, 15 minutes, and all the little kids and me go underneath the bucket and look up and just wait, you know, and you have to be really patient, and eventually it starts to tip, and everybody goes, oh, and then boom, it comes crashing down, and it's like 15 minutes of waiting for about three seconds of fun, right? And uh, anyways, it's pretty awesome, and I think this is a great picture of how God's justice, his anger, his wrath, if you will, that word might be a little bit politically incorrect in 2022, how, how it works. There's an interesting story in Genesis 15, which is a really important passage of scripture that, again, is kind of obscure, that maybe we don't realize makes such a big difference in the story of the Bible. But Genesis 15 is the story about this man named Abram, or Abraham as he's later known. And God calls him out of this place, Ur of the Chaldees, it's kind of Persia, Iran, to give you the geography there. And he says, I want you to come to this other place. And he goes to the land of uh, Canaan. And so those of you that are familiar with the story, uh, like me, maybe you've heard it and you kind of think about the land of Canaan as like this unpopulated area, kind of a wilderness and Abraham goes there. But that's not how it was. It was actually a very advanced civilization uh, that lived there. This is late Bronze Age and there are massive cities. There's agriculture, there's trade, there's armies. It's very well populated and developed. But God brings Abraham here and he tells him two things. He says, promise number one, I'm going to give you descendants like the sand of the seashore. Now, Abraham doesn't even have, he doesn't have any kids, but God says, I'm going to give you a great amount of descendants. The second thing, he says, I'm going to give you this land. And God makes these promises. Yahweh makes these promises to Abram. He even changes his name to Abraham, which means father of multitudes or father of nations. And so we see these promises here. But in Genesis 15, 16, there's something really interesting. There's a little, just sort of a snippet here that, will reveal the character of Yahweh and reveal this Erech Apaim at work. He says to him, In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, what does this even mean? Well, the Amorites were one of the tribes, and sometimes were kind of used as the bigger tribe description of this whole area in the land of Canaan. And they were ruthless, bloodthirsty, violent, child-sacrificing. Historically, we know that they were even indulged in cannibalism. Their sexual practices are not even, I could not repeat them on a stage here. Whether this be a church or any other place, it would be too, uh, it'd be too grotesque. They were the literal worst. They, they had uh, false gods, idols. We talked about this last week, these Elohim, these dark, evil spirits that demanded sacrifice. And what we know that they would do is they would take these metal idols that were hollowed out. They would light a fire in it till it was burning hot. This idol would have a little bit of like a plate or hands that would stick out metal. And they would take infants and place infants on this heated up thing. And they would literally sizzle and kill their, their children. So how many of you are like, not a fan of the Amorites, right? This, this isn't like a college football rivalry. These are bad, bad people. They're, they're what we would almost say beyond redemption, beyond hope. And God says, Abraham, I'm going to use your family to deliver this land. Another part of the scripture says, even the ground itself wanted these people gone. If you are so bad that you make dirt not like you, I mean, you have problems, right? You have issues. <laughs> but here's God and where everyone would be like, take them out, God. Do what's right. They're murderers. They're evil. They're cannibals. They're wicked. They're, they're, just, they're like, they're gone. They're too far gone. There's no hope. God says, Abraham, 
this will be your land. I'm going to give you descendants, but it's not going to happen for generations. And then we know in the story of the Bible that Abraham, he has his son, son has a son. That family goes to Egypt. They're there for 430 years. When I say that God has a big nose, we have no idea. His nostrils are so long, we might think in years, we might think in decades, and God operates in centuries of mercy. His patience is legendary. His long-suffering, his capacity to allow someone to continue to do wrong, not because he's okay with wrong, as we're going to see, but because he is a rech apayim, he is patient and he wants people to turn their hearts to what is right. And so here's Abraham and God tells him this. And it's like that, imagine that, that thing from the Great Wolf Lodge. It's filling up, but it's not time to pour out yet. God is so merciful. But the other side of this, the other side of God is slow to anger, is that God does get angry. Now, maybe in 2022, we're so intellectual and we're so civilized and we're so above it all that we can't, we can't bear the thought of a God who would get angry because we only see anger as negative. But I'd, I'd like to hopefully deliver you from that false idea today as we look into where anger is appropriate and where it is also justified and how it's connected to justice and the resolution of the conflict that has plagued this planet from the Garden of Eden to this day. Because the fact is, it is good for you and good for I that God actually does get angry Because when it comes to the real evil and the real suffering and the real mess in this world, don't we all want and long for justice to prevail over injustice? Don't we want the evil and the brokenness and the idolatry and the wounded relationships and the the abuse and suffering that takes place to be resolved and, and God's justice to come? John Stott defines God's wrath this way. He says, his steady unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising, antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. God hates. He hates injustice. There's even parts of the Bible where God's like, I hate this person. And people are like, and a lot of pastors won't preach it because they don't have a theology with two sides to it. You see, God is slow. He's patient, but he does get angry. The bucket eventually pours out. And that's actually good news for us because what it means is God will not leave this planet in the, in the thralls of hell that have captivated it since pretty close to the beginning of the story. There is a great war. We talked about this last week, this great spiritual battle, the forces of darkness that hate Yahweh, that hate his good world, that hate you and your soul and your family and want to drag you down into addiction and oppression, that want to get you to fight your brother and sister, that God wants to ransom and redeem and want to destroy the good world. God hates injustice because it's a perversion of the good world that he created for us to operate in and to rule and reign in. Jesus tells us to love our neighbor as ourself, and he tells us to do to others what we would want them to do to you, and that's the essence of everything in the law and the prophets. God wants you to get along with your brother and your sister because he created something good for you to enjoy together And this world has become polluted and perverted with injustice and sin and and brokenness. And what we see in the story of humanity is that hurt people hurt people. Broken people break people. 
generationally, and this is kind of previewing a little bit of what God is saying even when he says, I'm going to visit the sin of the fathers upon the children, is that sin has ramifications not just on you but upon your family. And that brokenness has invaded this planet and it's ruining it. It's like a cancer eating it from the inside out. And we think our politics are going to save us, our philosophies, if we just simply had more resources and no, no, no. The answer is and always has been that a God of justice who cares about evil, though he is slow and patient, will eventually bring all things back to square one, back to zero. He will, he will judge. But it's important for us to understand that God's anger is not like our anger. You see, if you're the duck fan who's repenting on scoop duck message boards because you broke some, your TV, or you're the, uh, you know, the guy who flies in a fits of rage, or you're the lady who, who learns, has learned every cuss word under the sun that you use in your car when you're driving you know, down the road, that anger is, is coming out of wounded pride, ego. Somebody owes me something, and I didn't get it. But God's anger is not that. God's anger is the result of fatherly love to protect, preserve, and bring the ultimate good for his children to the forefront. God's, God is ferocious to defend his children. I love my kids. Even as an earthly, sinful father who's not perfect in any way, if somebody tries to mess with or hurt or attack my children, there will be a different side. Man, I want to be like my father in heaven, slow to anger. But if you come after my kids, it won't be the gentle shepherd. It'll be the German shepherd. <laughs> and I think there's something appropriate about that. Let me just preach for a minute today. If we had more fathers with more spine in our culture, we wouldn't have so many broken kids crying themselves to sleep at night. And we think that being a man is like, oh, I hunt and I kill moose with my bare hands. No, a man goes home to the same woman every day for every day of his life. Because a real man is a man who makes a covenant and promises something to a woman before God and honors that commitment even when it gets hard. And even when you feel like there's better options. This is being, what, being like who God is. And men, this culture has spit on you and cast you down and tried to castrate you and, and, and make, make these images of you that you're just, you're so addicted and all you, all you need is football and porn. And I'm here to tell you, your God made you for purpose to stand up like the lion that you are to defend again, and, and defeat injustice in the world around you in Jesus' name. Let's continue with our sermon today. That's why I love Yahweh because he's patient, but he will absolutely bring judgment down upon injustice at some point. So he's not just weak and sort of, oh, everything's fine. It's not fine. When people are abused, when they're brought into sexual slavery, when there's racism, when there's economic oppression that maybe you don't see it, but it exists in the world. Do you know there are more human slaves today than there ever were in 1858? But we don't care about that, do we? Well, God cares. And he sees and he hears the cry of the oppressed. Pastor Jake, you need to take some more Tums. Seems like that. No. God's anger is a righteous anger coming from the heart of a father. And when someone has experienced suffering, when they've experienced abuse, when they've experienced evil, what is the cry that comes out of their heart? Let justice be done. Let, let there be righteousness. Like the scripture says, let justice roll like a river. We want, when there's been abuse, when there's been pain, we want somebody to say it's not okay and we're going to do something about it. And so though God is slow to anger, he does get angry because his wrath is poured out upon injustice. 
I want to give a couple of takeaways today. Number one, God wants to remove, as we, as we seek to be like our Father in heaven, we seek to be like Yahweh. He wants to remove the poison of hasty and unrighteous anger from your soul. I love this quote by Frederick Buechner. He said, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past. To roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come. To savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Unrighteous anger will draw you down. It's from hell, not from heaven. A lot of Christians, a lot of people are like, well, we're right about a particular issue politically, or we're right, we're agreeing with God about something, but you can be right in principle and wrong in practice because God's anger is delayed and slow and and meted out appropriately in righteousness where ours is often a, a rush to judgment, a rush to relieve an emotional turmoil that we feel, but it's not from God. And if, if our, I think that discipleship and becoming a, a child of God, one of the chief goals is that we would be like him, be like him. And if God is slow to anger, then we ought to be as well. Paul unpacks this in Galatians 5. He talks about this living a spirit-filled life. He says the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy. Here we go. Fits of rage. Selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, Scripture tells us, is righteousness, peace, and the Holy Ghost. The kingdom of God is where Jesus is ensconced as king, where his rule and reign and what he wants to happen actually happens. I don't think Paul is saying here that if you participate in the works of the flesh, that you're not going to heaven. I think what he's saying is you'll miss heaven come to earth. Because your spirit doesn't want what God wants for this planet. You still think that fits of rage is going to fulfill you, and it's not. But here's what a spirit-filled person, uh, the fruit that they bear. He says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. This is patience or long-suffering. It's that same arech apayim, this concept. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. With our kids, every day we get to see the, the battle between the flesh and the Spirit. Uh, number one, we get to see it in ourselves as parents. Amen. But we also get to see them wrestle with it. And I, I'm fascinated hearing my children express in their juvenile and yet more authentic and honest way what they're experiencing. Because we'll say, hey, you can't punch your sibling. So like, we know you're frustrated, but you know, you can't punch your sister in the stomach. And why are you so upset? Well, I just get so mad when they do such and such a thing. We'll say, well, you have to stop. And they'll go, I can't. Have you ever heard your kids say this? You're screaming at your sibling. You need to stop. I can't stop. And I realize this is an honest heart of a person struggling with their sin. And what, what we'll tell our children is you can because you have the Holy Spirit on the inside of you. And he will give you this power to be in self-control. And you can practice that. And don't say, I can't. Say, I can, as the Lord helps me to do it. This is what a spirit-filled life looks like. Pastor, I can't forgive. I can't be, I can't be at peace. I can't not be angry and go into fits of rage. You know, you can. You just need to be filled with the Spirit. James 1.19 says this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, 
and slow to become angry. Arech apaim. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And there it is right there. When we feel anger, typically it's not coming from, it's not from a righteous perspective. God, when you think about how his love and faithfulness and his anger and justice and judgment, all of that ties together, it's, it's centuries and thousands of years long. How can you or I, as somebody who's going to live to be 80, 90 years old, even tap into the depth of that trajectory, of the, the narrative of that story? What I often find is that I might be right in, in principle, but I'm wrong in practice, and my anger is coming from the flesh, and it's not producing righteousness in me. And it's not producing righteousness around me. If you're one of these Christians that said, well, I'm, I have righteous anger. Well, then where is the righteousness that that anger produced? Because when Yahweh gets angry, people get righteous. They get right with God and they get right with one another. And civilization and culture and society gets right. But oftentimes when we get angry, things get worse. Which shows us that it was coming from the wrong kingdom. Righteous anger produces righteousness in you and in the people around you and in your, your culture. So God wants to remove the poison of hasty and unrighteous anger from our soul. Number two, God is not a passive observer of evil and suffering. As we talk about the slowness of God, that the, the tank is being filled, we can often think, well, he just doesn't care. When bad things happen, Lord, I, where, where were you, Yahweh, when I was being abused as a child? Where were you when my spouse cheated on me and left me and left me high and dry and lied about me and took the kids or whatever? And we might think, well, God is just, he doesn't care. He's just so cosmic. He's so above it all. He's, I am God, hear me roar. And he just doesn't care. And, and, and the story that we see about God that he reveals of himself, his name is that he deeply cares. But here's the problem that God faces. It's probably the chief problem at the center of most problems is that the offended and the offender are often one and the same. You see, if God were to go scorched earth on the people that hurt you, he'd have to go scorched earth on you as well. Because like Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The scripture tells us there is no one righteous. No, not one. The, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro around the world looking for someone. Is there anybody that has got it right 100% of the time that aced the test? And what we find in the story of Scripture from cover to cover is nobody nailed it. Nobody got it right. Not one person lived a perfect life other than one. God himself in the form of Jesus, right? Living out a perfect life and giving himself as a sacrifice. But that's kind of fast-forwarding in the story a little bit. When we come back to us as humans, the issue is that we've all been hurt by evil and suffering, but we've also been part of the problem. <laughs> Ultimately, God's wrath and his justice, his mercy and his judgment were brought together in one crazy significant moment, the cross, where all of God's anger against sin was laid upon Jesus, the perfect lamb. And he, in that moment, took the adultery, the murder, the slander, the abuse, the scandal, and he became it. Scripture says he became sin for us. And God brought his wrath down upon Jesus and made a path that if we would receive Jesus, if we would take what he did for us, then we would be absolved, that we would be forgiven of our sins and made right with God. It's powerful. But listen to what Jesus says. He says in the Lord's Prayer, and Lord, forgive me my sins as I forgive those who've sinned against me. You see, there's a new economy in the kingdom of God, and it's an economy where all have sinned and fallen short, and therefore no one can stand and say, you owe me something. 
well, you, you, you owe me, you abuse me, you, you attack me, you did that. I'm not saying don't draw boundaries, but I'm saying in our soul, when you receive the final absolution and forgiveness of Christ, you can't hold someone else to account. And Jesus tells us a story about this and says, you can't be that servant that was forgiven a great debt and goes and holds somebody else accountable. But that doesn't mean God doesn't care. See, it's quite the opposite. He cares deeply and for all evil and all suffering and all abuse and all of this that doesn't get dealt with by a person receiving Christ, there will ultimately be a judgment upon the world. And we're going to talk about that. Number three, we'll finish here. God's justice seems slow because his patience is incredible. Again, as human beings that think in minutes, seconds, years, maybe if you're a very long-range thinking person, decades, God thinks in, you know, epics. He thinks in generations. He thinks in centuries. He thinks about empires. He doesn't, his patience isn't like for a year. His patience could be for hundreds of years, even beyond your entire life. Peter talks about this, and he kind of brings it together really well. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. In other words, Yahweh's not going to come back. That bucket's never going to pour. There's never going to be an account. All this injustice, is, it's, it's not going to get dealt with. I can do what I want. I can be who I want. I can live the way I want, and nothing will ever happen. Peter says, ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forgot that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. In other words, Yahweh created everything. He's the boss. And listen to what it says next. By the same word, by these waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. That water bucket has a new meaning, doesn't it? In the time of Noah, which the Bible references often, there was such wickedness in the world that God said, enough is enough. There's so much abuse. There's so much violence. There's so much iniquity and sin. And it's not victimless. See, when we hear the word sin, what you need to always attach it to is someone is, being, is suffering because of it. And Yahweh said, enough is enough. And that was the great flood. And he wiped the slate clean and he started over with Noah and his family. And Peter's referencing back to this. And he says, if he did it before, don't you think that there is a judgment that's coming? Now, we know that the Lord won't enter the world with water. He promised he would, and that's what, it, what the rainbow is for, that sign of the covenant. But Peter goes on and says, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Now, there's a lot of churches, a lot of places that will not tell you this because it's too uncomfortable but the scripture is filled with something that is called the day of the Lord. And that's not like a cutesy thing. It means that God will come back and he's angry. He's upset because there has been abuse. There's been racism. There's been injustice. Somebody's had their boot on someone's neck. And the widows and the orphans and the weak and the poor have been downtrodden. And those that could have done something, said nothing, did nothing, and laughed in their, in their wealth and affluence while it was going on. And at some point, the goodness of God will provoke him to unleash the wrath of God because he loves his kids and enough is enough. And you're like, oh my gosh, I thought we were going to have a nice day at church. We are, we are. Because wait for this next part. Yes, Yahweh will judge. Yes, there will be a day when the bucket pours. Yes, the great and terrible day of the Lord is coming. 
But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. Verse 8. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And there we have it. The character of God is that he does not want any of us to get left out of the party. He doesn't want any of us to come under judgment for our sin. He does not want you to, to, to choose to live this unrighteousness and be part of the demonic and evil agenda that's trying to wreck the world that God wants you to have, that he made for you. He wants to redeem and reconcile you, bring you into right relationship, teach you what it means to be a human and give you an awesome uh, life as a human and an awesome relationship with him and with each other. He wants to set all things right. And when we look at the world and we go, when, 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 why does God just let stuff go on? Why did he let the Amorites continue to do what they were doing for 400 years? Because his heart is so good. And ultimately what he longs for is that everyone would come to repentance. Everyone would change their heart, change their mind, come to Christ and come into relationship with him. To me, the mercy of God stands in staggering contrast to the judgment of God but there will be justice, and I'm grateful for that. And what we are to do as followers of Jesus is call people to repent and turn from sin and turn to the kingdom of God and join Yahweh as he makes this world what he originally intended it to be. But if you reject that and you turn aside from that, then let me not be, the, the, let me not be one that would not warn you and would be a false preacher and not tell you that there will be a consequence. There is a day of the Lord. Is it tomorrow? Is it the next day? I have no idea. But I don't want to find out and be on the wrong side of it. Because I know the goodness of God will provoke him to justice. He is perfectly good. And he could not be perfectly good if he was not perfectly just. Amen? But it's not the wrath of God, the judgment of God that turns us to repentance. It is his goodness, as the scripture says. God has a big, beautiful, long nose. And he's taking some big, deep breaths with you. Maybe it wouldn't even be in your lifetime that you would experience judgment. What I would say is this. Why, why dangle the patience of God? Why not say, you know what? Today, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to give him my life. I'm going to turn my life to God and be part of his, his work for good in our world. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads. Close our eyes real quick. If you're here today and you say, Pastor Jake, I, I want to put my faith and trust in Christ. I mean, we could just talk about it all day. God's love for you poured out on the cross. Jesus died for the sin that you committed, that, that others committed. He died for the sins of this world. He became that sin. He, he took it on himself and he paid the price. And now his mercy is for you, for me, for all that would call upon his name. And if you're here today and you say, I want that mercy. I want to have a relationship with God. I want to turn my life over to him then I ask you today to just raise your hand so I can see. Thank you. I'm not going to embarrass you or call you out or anything. Thank you so much. I just want to give you an opportunity. Thank you. Awesome, awesome. We're going to pray this prayer with you, and this is just the first step in making a commitment to Christ, and then we're going to give you some ways to take a next step after. Let's pray this prayer together. We're all going to pray it. Dear Jesus, I confess my sin to you. I know that I've not lived up to your standard, but I thank you for your grace and mercy revealed to me at the cross where you gave your life for me and made a way for me to be right with you. I give you my life. 
I receive you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.